Well, good morning. Good morning to all of those who are online here and maybe in the chapel in the, uh, this morning. Great to have you in fellowship today. Uh, wasn't that good worship music together? Yeah, yeah. amen. That was excellent. Um, I got some good news. If you're new this morning, I've got some really good news for you. I am not that vibrant, young, leading uh, pastor that you have. I'm an old curmudgeon. And this morning, um, I'd like to share some thoughts that God has placed on my heart um, for about a year and a half. My name is Kevin Peters. I teach at Prairie College I, in the area of psychology and counseling. In February of 2021, about a year and a half ago, I was in a used bookstore and picked up this book. It's entitled, Reclaiming Virtue, How We Can Develop the Moral Intelligence to Do the Right Thing at the Right Time for the Right Reason. You would think this would be a great book, and it was okay. But it struck a chord with me because I, as most of us during that time, were becoming very weary of the antagonism, the dissension, the hostility, the rancor that was boiling in the nations of the world, that was rumbling in our society, that in our homes, and even in our churches. I was tired of it. Separating people into acceptable and unacceptable, safe and unsafe, politically left and right, vaxxed and unvaxxed. <clears throat> so I started reading the book. Well, it wasn't as helpful as I wanted it to be, but it was useful in other ways because it got me thinking about moral excellence. It got me thinking about goodness, about righteousness, instead of dealing with all the vice and the meanness and disrespect that surrounded us. We understand virtues, these morally excellent qualities, because they're founded on the character of God. So God is holy, he's loving, he's just, he's merciful, he's faithful, he's truthful, he's patient, he's wise. All of these things we would like to have in our Human experience has exemplary qualities, virtues. So I continued, and I took it from the book to begin reading in Scripture about these virtues as they show up in Scripture. And as I was reading, there was another word that kept popping up in my thoughts and within Scripture that described God's mindset and the mindset he, that he desires for us to work in. Thus, the title of the sermon, Amazing Ordinary Grace. Somewhat contradictory, maybe. Amazing. Grace that is abundant. Grace that is supernatural, from God, freely given. And yet, grace that is ordinary, not in the sense of just 
you know, lesser, but more in the sense of something that should be usual, something that should be customary or regular. Grace is used to describe a lot of things that happen in this world, in our lives. We have grace periods uh, in legal contracts that we have sometimes. Uh, sometimes we uh, become... Um, we, we become part of somebody's good graces or we fall out of grace, for instance. We use the great word uh, graceful to talk about certain kinds of movements. We use the word gracious to talk about extended, unordinary, extra kinds of kindness that can happen to us. When we think of extraordinary, supernatural grace, we refer to the grace that's offered to us by God. We sing about it. We've sung about it this morning. We sing amazing grace, marvelous grace, wonderful grace, grace greater than our sin. Grace is the self-giving nature of God. God's grace existed before the fall. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells us that God saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And so grace resides in God's character and has nothing to do with our capacity to deserve it. Grace is the unmerited kindness of God to us. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Throughout the narratives of the Old Testament, God's grace is infused into the lives of men and women. During Noah's time, wickedness and evil were so rampant on the earth that God said, I wonder why I even created people. But there was one man who was righteous and faithful. And scripture tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. In spite of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and disobedience, God remained faithful to his promise to them that he would, make, uh, that he would bless the families of the earth through them. That's grace. God used Joseph, who was despised by his brothers, sold into slavery, wrongly accused, left to rot in prison. God used his difficult circumstances to save the life of his people. That's grace. Moses was arrogant, stubborn, doubtful. And yeah, over time he learned how to serve faithfully and lead his people out of captivity but God chose to walk with a man who in his youth had killed another man with his bare hands. That's grace. Rahab, a prostitute, in our eyes a sinner, unworthy of grace, heard tales of the God of Israel. And when two spies sought out some uh, shelter in her home, she bravely asked them and asked God 
to save her and her family. And what did he do? He did save them. That's grace. David lusted, stole, lied, killed, was adulterous. He made some horrible decisions along his life. But you open the book of Psalms and you'll be astounded by his love for God. You'll be astounded by his awareness of the depth of his sin and the depth of God's grace. In the whole of Scripture, the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says this, this is what Sky read to us this morning, the Word became flesh, the Word being Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God becoming man. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. How did he come from the Father? Full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness and out of that fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. Other versions talk about we've received grace on top of the grace that we already have. What a double blessing. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came with grace and truth. He didn't come with law and judgment. He came with grace, demonstrating God's love and truth, showing God's light. These two words go to the very heart of the gospel. Because he was full of grace, he died for you and me while we were yet sinners. And because he was full of truth, he was able to pay for our sins completely. Amazing grace. Ordinary grace. But I ran into a problem. As I was thinking about it, the more I thought about grace, the more this problem showed itself up. I ran into the problem of sin. And what I discovered was that an understanding of grace needs the language of sin. When we talk about grace today, um, we sometimes use the words and, and the thoughts synonymously, like tolerant or lenient. You know, I, for my students. Yeah, I'll show you some grace and you can, I'll accept papers, I'll accept late papers. Or maybe if you're running into financial problems, you know, maybe you get a 10-day grace period from your banker to, for those monthly mortgage payments. But that's not the kind of grace that's a remedy for sin. What about the word sin? Sometimes sin evokes an image of an angry fundamentalist preacher pounding the pulpit who seem more intent of condemning and judging than speaking about forgiveness and grace. Sometimes we think of sin as something that people use in order to manipulate and to um, co 
coerce people into particular ways of behaving. And I'm afraid sometimes we think of sin too lightly as a topic of a lighthearted joke. Or maybe the name for a city where people gamble and party. Sin City, Las Vegas. But these are distorted views of sin. When we take time to understand the magnitude of the sin problem, I think we begin to realize that no one escapes its pull. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they not only affected their own destiny, but they affected the destiny of all who followed, us included, myself included. Humanity is fallen, and that makes it impossible for us or any human being to live a sinless life. We are not born morally neutral. We are not born having the capacity to choose good and evil throughout our lives. As an atheist, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote many novels, famous Russian novelist, but an atheist, although in later years, in his later years, having leanings toward Christianity. As an atheist, though, he understood the depravity of man. And he says this, when I lay there rotting on prison straw, so he was a political prisoner in Russia because he was a dis, uh, dissident. When I lay there on rotting prison straw, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Ouch. Sin is bigger and more powerful than we know. I, I think sometimes we fall view, uh, we fall prey to the view that sin is like a toggle switch. Yeah, like either we're sinning this moment or we're not. Either we're violating God's commands or we're not. Either we're gossiping or lying or we're not. But that's a really lesser view of sin. It doesn't take into the reality of what sin is really all about. I suggest to you this morning that sin shows up in three different aspects or three dimensions for us. We live in a world where the noise of sin can't be turned off because we're born sinful creatures and we enter into a sinful world even before we have a choice to sin. This is our natural disposition and touches every aspect of our human existence. Theologians call it original sin. And it comes with us, or because it comes with us, 
into every aspect of our lives. This one really hit me. As I thought further on this, I had to address some deep-seated attitudes. Because it's really easy for me to compare myself to others. In fact, if we're honest, we all do it. When I see someone who's been deeply scarred by their own sin, or maybe wounded by the sin of others, I often say, and maybe you've said this phrase too, there but for the grace of God go I. You've said that before? Yeah. But I realized what I've just done by saying that is I've justified myself. I made myself look good in comparison. What I really should be saying is, there go I. I may not have committed exactly the same sins or been wounded in the same ways. But the doctrine of original sin is the idea that we're all broken human beings pushing through life's challenges. One person struggles one way, another person struggles another way, but we all live in this constant state of original sin. No human experience is devoid of sin. We love people. But you realize our love is never completely pure? We make sinful choices. Or sorry, there's always a hint, rather, in that love of self-interest or self-absorption. We see somebody that's hurt or harmed, and we cry out for justice. But we fail to catch the glimpses of our own sense of self-righteousness or superiority, especially to those who might care less about that justice being done. Sin is always there. We've been so accustomed to it. In the midst of the ongoing noise of original sin, we sometimes choose evil. This is the second aspect. We commit sins consciously or unconsciously. We make sinful choices and and I often make the same choices over and over again. As sinful creatures, we rebel against God in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our behaviors, in our relationships. And we do and think things that we should not do. And we don't do things and, say, and think things and say things that we should do. Both are sin. 
often we tend to minimize our sin by focusing on, others, on worse things that others have done. But you know what? We're all sinners. And because we live in a sinful world, we're constantly surrounded by the consequences of our sin. Our sin and the sin of others contribute to this swill, the sickening swill. Each of us has in some way been sinned against, ranging from life-changing, heavy offenses against us to relatively forgettable offenses. But these sins against us are harmful, sometimes physically, most often emotionally, and always spiritually, because they tear the relationship, the relational fabric of God's creation, and they cause us to be increasingly isolated and cynical. But it is easier to see how others hurt us than it is for us to see how we've hurt others. With each word of criticism and act of selfishness, we hurt those in our path. With every vengeful attitude or action, every word of gossip, we add to the sin problem. Grace friends, is a pervasive part of God's character. It's not that we sin first and then grace shows up. Grace is in and around us, around our lives. And what it does, grace gives us the opportunity to see our sin. And only as we grasp the immensity of our sin and of the sin problem, we're able to see the, glim- the depth of God's grace. And when we see God's grace, it gives us the courage to face our sinfulness. And we need, you know what, if, if fear and shame and guilt drive people into hiding, what brings people out is grace. Grace provides compassion and kindness, and mercy, and forgiveness. And aren't we all in need of that? But we're simply not passive recipients of grace. We're called to be active bearers of grace. So, as we walk in our journey of life, what is a call What's called for us, both personally and as a church? What does it mean for us to walk in grace? Personally, I think the walk of grace can be equated to what Paul called walking in the fullness of the Spirit. In Galatians, he talks about that particular um, that particular aspect of our lives about life in the Spirit and what it means to, to walk in the Spirit. He says, 
<clears throat> in Galatians chapter 5, and you, you, you've heard these words before probably. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he goes on and lists a whole bunch of the acts of the flesh. Sin. He says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to the Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus had another way of talking about what it meant to walk a life of grace. In John chapter 15, he talks about living in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. A life of grace is characterized by walking in the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit, by being attached to the vine, remaining in the vine. And a life of grace is also one where we give more than we receive. Giving is how God demonstrated his love for us. You know John 3.16, what are the words? For God so loved the world that he gave. God blesses us. Or giving, rather, is the way that God blesses others. Giving increases our social connectedness and our trust. Giving makes you listen to other people's stories differently. Giving makes you look at your resources differently. You know, God's grace isn't just shown personally. God's grace is shown in many different ways. And one of the ways that blows my mind about God's grace and, why, and his desires for us to show it is that he desires to show it in the church and through the church. This all too sinful church. The church has been called to a mission. And our mission is to be the visible grace of God to the world. So how do we do that? Let me suggest three things. 
First, first, there we go. <laughs> first, I believe we need to understand what it means to focus on the things, uh, the, uh, things of first importance. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians, near the end of his letter, 1 Corinthians says this from chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you, and then he says these words, as of first importance. And then he goes on to say, what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he talks about all the others that he appeared to. Do you know what he just said there? What's the first importance? The gospel. The gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. Do you realize the book that it came from? 1 Corinthians is filled with church struggles. Struggles between leaders. Sexual immorality. Lawsuits among believers. Marital discord. Talking about food sacrificed to idols. Struggles with personal freedoms. Abuse of the Lord's Supper. Struggles among believers between roles and positions as they serve in the church. Worship wars. Doctrinal differences. That's a lot of dissension. That's a lot of stuff that can get us off track. And so at the end of his letter, or near the end of his letter, no wonder he says, ah, we've got to stick to the things of first importance. It's all about the gospel. And the gospel is all about grace. Where today would we find the most receptivity to the gospel? Nothing has changed, by the way, between today or between Jesus' time and today. To the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus had a bad reputation. He ate with sinners and tax collectors and thieves and deliberately wicked people who were rejected by their fellow Jews. But God's grace went out to them. God's grace goes out to every person in every life situation, to the mentally ill, to the arrogant, to the physically ill, to murderers, to the dishonest, to unwilling servants, to the sexually irresponsible, to those for whom difficult circumstances can't change. 
Do you know why we as a church have bought the land south of us? Pre-pandemic, we as a church had got together and over the course of several months of praying and talking and thinking about what God has called us to do, we came to an idea of what the future looked like. Not so much in terms of the exact kinds of things that were there, but in terms of what we believed God was calling us a church to move and what direction it was calling us to move. And the top two things that came out were that God has called us to be a place of healing and reconciliation. Those were the top two things. And how do we do that? How do we do that? I suggest we do that by making the gospel of first importance. By making the good news of first importance. We can have all sorts of programs and all sorts of things happening but if the gospel is not, the gospel of grace is not the first importance. It won't happen. Secondly, not only keeping things first, of first importance as, as in the gospel, but secondly, let's endeavor to keep in fellowship. You know, it's really been easy for me over these past couple of years to sit at home and, you know, maybe I'm not feeling all that hot and, you know, I've had a rough week or whatever and to watch the live stream, which is happening right now. But we're told and encouraged by the writer of Hebrews, if we want to consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, one thing we need to do is keep meeting together not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's keep in fellowship. And thirdly, let's love deeply. In John's epistle, chapter 3, 1 John, he says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then a few verses later in chapter 4, he says uh, this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. 
No one's seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We're moving forward into a new year. For college, you're in. For high school and elementary school, junior high, you're almost in. For church ministry, we're moving into a new church ministry year. As we do so, may God's amazing grace to you flow through you in ordinary, everyday interactions and relationships. Friends, let's choose amazing, ordinary grace. Let's pray. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore amen go in grace will you determine to do that in all of your interactions throughout this coming year God bless you by his grace Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.